I was introducing the Asuba Bhavana, the reflection on the non-beauty of the body. As you know, this is one of the four protective meditations, and so this kind of reflection helps or extends a protection, um, protection against desire and attachment in regard to the body. So in this talk, I will address the topic of desire, attachment, in general. How can we deal when desire and attachment arise, when they are present? The Dalai Lama often begins his talks with a phrase like, everybody wants happiness, nobody wants suffering, isn't it so? And with these words, he immediately makes a connection to his audience, however big it may be, hundreds of people, thousands, tens of thousands of people. And so everybody is directly addressed and it feels like, wow, he knows me. How does he know? <laughs> so happiness or peace, satisfaction or fulfillment, that's what people want. And in order to feel happy, to be peaceful, what do people normally do in order to be happy and satisfied? So very often it is through the gratification of the senses, doing things like listening to nice music, to have a cup of tea or coffee, or meeting with a dear friend, or to go for a walk in nature, or to sit in the sun and looking at the trees or to read inspiring poetry, or to indulge in a fantasy, or then making plans for our next holiday, or maybe our next meditation retreat, or going out um, for a movie, and so on. So this process of gratifying our every desire for sense pleasures has become uh, our default setting. It has become a habitual and deeply conditioned reaction. Almost everybody on this planet 
functions in this way. People fall constantly prey to these uncountable temptations present almost everywhere. When we were young, nobody showed us another way of dealing with desire. We simply imitated our parents or friends and thereby we picked up these patterns of behavior. So in general, this gratification of the senses is provided by certain external conditions or circumstances, or then it is provided by some internal conditions, such as altered states of mind, like indulging in fantasies, or the, at the jhanas, or being high on drugs. So, the so-called ordinary beings, and the Buddha called them the uninstructed worldlings, they do not see the danger lying in this way of gratification. Ordinary beings, ordinary humans, they only see the immediate happiness or joy or peace that comes about by gratifying the senses, by gratifying their desires, wantings, cravings. The Buddha had said, the Blessed One has stated how sensual pleasures provide little gratification much suffering and much despair, and how great is the danger in them. So I think for many people this is difficult to hear and understand. For example, how can looking at the beautiful scenery lead to suffering and misery? And then, moreover, People are sure that they can do so without any desire or attachment. So they are sure there is no attachment involved by doing so, by looking at the beautiful scenery. And so, therefore, people are sure that in their case it does not lead to suffering or misery. However, the Buddha continued, and he said that one can engage in sensual pleasures without sensual desires, without thoughts of sensual desire. That is impossible. So this is a very clear statement of the Buddha, and a statement that may bring up uneasiness because we thought that we were able to engage in sensual uh, pleasures without desire or without attachment. So this statement of the Buddha is a very good opportunity 
to look closely at desire, to see whether or not what the Buddha had said is true. So let's look what does desire, craving, wanting or attachment feel like? When it is present in our mind, what's the actual experience of it? So when there is desire, wanting, attachment, then the mind firmly sticks to the object of desire. It really wants it or it doesn't want to let go anymore. So the stickiness is the characteristic of any form of desire, wanting, attachment. And the traditional analogy that is given in the scriptures is that of a piece of meat that sticks to a hot iron pan. Because I think at the time of the Buddha they had no Teflon pans. <laughs> and a friend of mine who lives in the Blue Mountains Many years ago, he had practiced meditation in Sri Lanka <clears throat> and at that time his meditation teacher showed him this stickiness of desire, attachment. And then this friend showed me in the same way. So he said the teacher put the hands together like this and then trying to pull the hands apart. <laughs> Apparently the teacher went on and on and on and on. And the nun who had to translate for the teacher finally said, Pante, I think it's enough. <laughs> anyway, it made a lasting impression on my friend and on me as well. And then another thing we can see and experience when desire, uh, wanting, craving is present then there is a strong pull to act, like to get the sensual satisfaction and gratification. So you know, when there is desire for food, so there is the strong pull to, to get the food one is craving for, or to then feel cozy and warm, or to buy another pair of shoes, or to change the posture in the sitting meditation because it's uncomfortable. So one way to avoid the pitfall of engaging in sensual pleasures, of acting out the desire, would be to live a, a life 
of um, extreme asceticism, to live a very ascetic life. So, for example, to live in a very remote part, to live in a rustic hut with no electricity, sleeping on a thin mat, having just one meal a day, and having almost no possessions at all. Of course, it does not ensure that no desire uh, comes up. In this regard, I want to share this story of an ascetic who possessed nothing except the, the clothes, the robe he was wearing, and the arms bowl he possessed. And his arms bowl was an empty, hollow gourd. And so the teaching of this ascetic was one of non-attachment. And this ascetic had become very famous in the country. So when the king heard about this famous ascetic, he called him to the palace and he appointed him his teacher. So every afternoon, this ascetic and the king went into a quiet corner of the royal garden and there the king listened to the teachings of this ascetic. And this ascetic made it very often a point to say that non-attachment was the true way to happiness and peace. So then one day as the two were sitting in a quiet corner of the garden, a servant came running and shouted, His Majesty, the palace is on fire. Please come quickly and give orders. The king looked up to the servant and very calmly said, My servant, don't you see that I'm getting teachings from my precious teacher? Don't bother me. You go back to the palace and do whatever is necessary. However, the ascetic immediately jumped up and explained, what do you say? The palace is on fire? I left my arms bowl in the palace. <laughs> so the point is not so much how many or how little possessions we have. It is rather about how we relate to these things, to these possessions and how we relate to things also includes our body and our mind. For example, in my case, I can say, I don't have a house, I don't have a car, I don't have a dog, <laughs> but I would say, this is my sweater, these are my notes, or I have a smartphone. Whenever we use the terms of I, or this is mine, this belongs to me, this is often an expression that includes, includes attachment, however gross or subtle this attachment is. 
I think all of you or most of you are familiar with the statement of the Buddha saying that nothing can consider to be me, mine or I. So in regard to form, which includes the body and material things, the Buddha said, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all form should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And then the Buddha uh, said the same in regard to the other aggregates. So he said the same in regard to feelings, to perceptions, to formations, and to consciousness. <clears throat> so, if things, material possessions, my body, my mind, are not mine, then to whom do they belong? Actually, this question is based on the wrong assumption that there is something or somebody that possesses absolute ownership. The question to ask is this, how come things into being? And the Buddha's reply to this is, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that comes not to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So this is actually the universal formula of dependent origination. It clearly states that there are things, that there are beings, and that things or beings arise and pass away. But nobody can possess these things because they come into being and then they go out of existence according to causes and conditions and not according to our desire or attachment. <clears throat> so it's not wrong to have things, to use things, but we should do so without clinging, without attachment. The king seemed to have learned the lesson very well, even outdoing his teacher, the ascetic. Although the king lived in great luxury and had his every wish fulfilled, he did not seem to be attached 
to any of these things. So he had been able to abandon the craving for and the attachment to these things. And therefore, his mind was not disturbed by the news that his palace was on fire. Many years, a friend of mine came to Burma. She had been uh, in Burma before, and this time she had planned to stay a couple of days in Yangon before coming out to the meditation center. After arriving in Yangon, she called me and said that she had arrived, but not her baggage. And so, she needed to go back to the airport the following day to see whether or not her baggage had arrived. And then she also asked me on the phone to convey her greetings to the Sayadaw and to tell him that she would come in a day or two depending um, whether her luggage had arrived and hopefully come with her luggage. And so when I told Sayadaw Indaka, he simply said, never mind, when she was born, she didn't bring any baggage either. <laughs> and likewise, we have to leave behind all our baggage when we die. We cannot take anything with us. So we come with nothing, and we have to go with nothing. But then, during our life, we carry around so much baggage. We get attached to so many things, to persons, to animals, to situations. Isn't this craziness? Aren't we insane? And actually, in the Abhidhamma, it is said, all worldlings are deranged, or all worldlings are crazy, insane. You know, like the story of the meditator who thought he was going crazy, and then Said was saying, no, 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 you're actually recovering from craziness. So, instead of falling prey to the countless temptations, we have to apply an antidote, which is, as you might guess or know, it's mindfulness, awareness. So we need to become increasingly aware of what we are doing, of what we are saying, and of what we are thinking. So by doing so, the first step is to become aware of the habitual patterns that run our lives. Because so much what we do, what we say, what we think runs on automatic pilot. And this discovery can be quite shocking or painful. For example, 
many years ago, when I was still a nun, I discovered that my hand would move over my head. And enjoying the particular sensation of having very short hair, you know, just the hair having grown three, four days after shaving the head. So after three, four days, it just would feel like a nice velvet carpet. So it's, it was a nice and enjoyable sensation. And then one day, I started to discover that I had the habit to do this. So by just discovering that I had this habit, the habit did not immediately stop. It still would happen uh, every now and again. But the more I really was aware of it, and the more I was mindful, then I could bring down the hand. And later on, I kind of was mindful or could catch the intention of getting this nice, pleasurable feeling. And so then, the second step is to recognize the underlying mental state of that action. You know, any habitual action that we do repeatedly. And so, basically, the underlying mental state is that of wanting, desire, craving. You know, wanting this or not wanting that. Craving for more of this, craving to get away from something. Wanting things to be this way, not wanting things to be that way. And so this is why it is so important to observe this pulling force of wanting or desire. And actually it can be very interesting to simply be aware and observe this pull or this force of craving. And it doesn't actually matter what the mind is craving for, you know, what kind of object or what kind of sensual gratification. So wanting or the pull of wanting, craving itself is the object of our attentive observation. At one stage in my meditation practice, I realized that strong compulsive force of thoughts in this way. Although I was aware that the thought was going on, and although I wanted to let go of the thought, I could not do so, because the attachment to the thought and its obsessing force were so strong that I had to think the thought to its very end. Only then was the mind prepared to let go of it. And so, in these moments, when I was 
aware of that obsessive force of the thought, that pulling force, then I could so clearly see the nature of wanting, desire, or attachment. So it's really essential to see and understand the nature of wanting, craving, attachment. And so the deeper and stronger, or the deeper the understanding, understanding is, then the stronger becomes our wish to reduce and later on to abandon the wanting, the craving, the desire. Because then we so clearly see and understand how being under the force of wanting and desire, how this creates suffering, how this feels miserable, how this then just creates all sorts of problems. So to be mindful of desire and to observe it in order to understand its nature, this is the first and most important way of dealing with any form of desire, wanting, craving or attachment. But then, however, sometimes we get completely stuck in the desire or the attachment or we get completely carried away by a strong craving. Sometimes we get completely sucked into a desire and then this leads to unskillful reactions and this pulls us only further down into misery and negativity. So to avoid this or to pull the emergency brake, there are a few approaches that can be helpful. And I will present these uh, approaches in two groups. So the first one, or the first group, consists of reflections that help reduce wanting, craving, attachment. And the second group deals with methods how we can divert the mind from the original object, the object that um, leads to the desire. So first, to the group of uh, certain reflections that can help reduce desire, craving, attachment. And so these reflections, they can be done on a regular basis, either at the beginning uh, of the day, in the first sit, or it can be every night, or whenever it fits uh, into our daily routine. And so the first of these reflections is the reflection on impermanence. Impermanence Anicca, the fleeting and impermanent nature of all conditioned phenomena. The Buddha had said, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. 
And so this applies to material things, this applies to our body and to our mind. They are all inher inherently impermanent. They do not last. They are ever-changing. So to reflect that things I use are impermanent, they will not last, they will break or they will disappear or they might be stolen. My body is not permanent, it's impermanent. The processes in the body are impermanent and the final impermanence is death. We won't last forever, we will die. And also the mind is not permanent, or mental states, emotions, they are not everlasting. They are also subject to arising and passing away. So to reflect in this way on the impermanent nature of everything. Achancha, this Thai uh, meditation master, he would look at the new glass that maybe some people offer to him. So he would look at this new glass and see it already as broken, knowing that this glass is subject to impermanence. One day it will break. And so Looking at the glass in this way, then he could use the glass as long as it was unbroken. But then it did not disturb his mind when the glass eventually broke. So this reflection on the impermanent nature of everything, of, our, of material things, of our body, of the mind, this is a powerful antidote to clinging, desire, or attachment. So when we repeatedly re reflect on the fact that we have to part from whatever is dear to us, whatever we are attached to, so doing this reflection repeatedly, then the mind starts to loosen its grip to these things. Then the mind starts to see the futility of clinging to something that we actually cannot possess in an absolute way. Then another reflection and the reflection that helps reduce our desire and attachment to the body is the reflection on the non-beauty of the body. I have introduced this reflection this morning. Our attachment to our body is quite big, it's quite strong. Like this physical mass of flesh, of bones, of blood, pus, feces, urine, is the object of so much attachment, of so much desire. And 
This is so because the body is a major part of our identification of who we are. And so therefore, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money as well, is invested in our body. We bathe it, we feed it, we empty our bladder and bowels, we comb our hair, we nicely shape and paint our fingernails, toenails, we also paint and decorate our face, or we take the body out for walks, we take it to the gym, we take it for a swim in the ocean, or we treat it with needles and cucumbers and avocado <laughs> and what not. So some of this is absolutely necessary and life-sustaining, but some of these things are not really necessary. Some of them are a complete waste of time and money. So even if you manage to have your body looking young, fit and trendy at the age of 85, you have to finally leave it behind. And then it will become either rotten within a short time or it will turn into ashes in no time. So if there were something inherently beautiful in our body, then it would need to stay like that for the rest of our life. But the fact is that it does not. For example, our beautiful hair is no longer so beautiful after two weeks of not washing it. And you remember the story I told this morning about my friend um, who ordained as a nun and so I had to shave her beautiful golden hair. And then Mimi, not really wanting it to put aside for the rest of her life. So this reflection on the non-beauty of the body can be done with two kinds of reflections. And one of these reflections is the so-called the charnel ground contemplation. At the time of the Buddha, when somebody died, the dead body was just thrown into a pit, the so-called charnel ground, somewhere outside of town or the village. And there, the body would rot and or um, eaten by animals. And so it was quite common that ascetics, hermits, monks, nuns would go to a charnel ground and contemplate the decaying stages of a corpse. And so the Buddha said that there are nine stages of decay. Nowadays, it's a bit more difficult to engage in this contemplation because we don't have charnel grounds and you simply cannot throw 
the corpse of your auntie into the backyard of your house and let it rot, you would get problems with the government. So that's why the other contemplation is easier to do. And that's the contemplation of the 32 parts of the body. This is what I introduced this morning and explained how we can do it. So in the morning I went through these 32 parts and I had asked you to just have a felt sense of that particular part of the body where it is or how you can experience it. Another way of doing the contemplation of these 32 parts of the body is to take each of these body parts and then put it in front of you, make a little heap. You know, you have the hair of the hair of the head, so you imagine that all your hair of the head uh, you put in front of you. And then hair of the body, so all body hair, another little heap in front of you. And actually we just could do it right now. As I go through the 32 parts, you may close your eyes, and then imagine that particular part being put in front of you and so making little heaps. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, fingernails, tooth nails, then the teeth, Then the skin, then a heap with your flesh, then all your sinews, a big heap of bones, the marrow, the kidneys. Then the heart, the liver, the diaphragm, the spleen, the lungs, then the intestines, the mesentery, the stomach, Pieces and the brain. And now you can imagine little balls to put the liquid, a ball for the bile, another one for the phlegm, then a ball for the pus, one for the blood. One for the sweat, one for the fat, 
one ball for the tears, one for the grease, one for the saliva, one for the nasal mucus, one for the synovial fluids, and the last one for the urine. So now seeing these 32 little heaps, balls in front of you, do you still identify, identify them as that's me or that's mine or that's my body? Most likely not. But then as soon as you take these 32 little heaps and put them together in a certain way, so that they take on the form of a human being, then again it becomes my body, that's me. So you may open the eyes again. So doing this reflection repeatedly over a certain period of time, this can help reduce our attachment to the body and at the same time we get a more realistic picture of what the body is and what it is made of. But this reflection should not arouse any disgust or ill will towards the body. It should not diminish our appreciation of having a body and we should not neglect the care for this body. Now I will go to the second group of approaches to deal with uh, forms of craving, desire and attachment. So when the first and most direct approach um, becomes very difficult, like the approach of just being mindful of desire or attachment and to really uh, observe it to see its nature. So when desire, attachment becomes so strong that we get carried away by it repeatedly, that we get sucked into it, get sucked into that negative uh, force, then we can resort to one of these approaches. So basically it's diverting the mind from the original object. And this approach comes also uh, in very useful in our day-to-day -day life when we do not have the time, the leisure, um, just to be mindful of a strong desire or attachment. And so, in this group of diverting the mind from the original object, the first approach is to change the object. So when the mind is pulled into an object by strong desire, by strong attachment, when we really get sucked into it, then 
we can change the object. So, you know, especially when we have been sucked into that desire or that kind of attachment to a certain thing, to a certain person, um, before. So when we had had the experience of how much we can um, get stuck in there. So then, as soon as we notice that the mind gets stuck in the desire to that thing or attachment to that person, we simply change the object and focus the mind on a different object. It's like, you know, if you grab a piece of a hot burning charcoal, you immediately would drop it, wouldn't you? And so in this way, the mind getting stuck or sucked into strong desire, attachment, you immediately drop it and turn the mind to another object. So you know, then to turn the mind to an object which is either neutral or an object that, from experience, you know, usually causes joy or happiness to arise. So this could be to uh, turn the mind to the experience of the breath, or it could be to bring the mind to a distinct touching sensation in the body, or it could be the change to doing metta meditation or any other of the four Brahma-viharas, or it could be changing to anapanasati, or um, to reflect on the Buddha's attributes. So in this way, the mind is taken away, is taken out of that desire attachment, and it does not further um, pull us down. Another way to deal with strong forms of desire, clinging, attachment, is the use of a determination. Like a strong desire can be countered by a strong resolve. Sometimes simply wanting to resist the pull of the desire might not be working, but when we do a conscious determination not to act on the desire, then it has a um, stronger power. So you know, there might be a strong desire regarding food or regarding clothes or going for a walk or going to the movies. And so then we can determine that we won't engage in that thing or that activity for a certain period of time. So it could be within the next hour, I will not give in to the craving for ice cream or determine that for half a day I will not give in to the desire of looking around, looking at the beautiful scenery during a meditation retreat. Or 
if you have a strong desire for coffee and usually want two cups, three cups or more, we could make the determination to only have one cup of coffee every morning. And so, if we do this conscious resolve or make this strong determination, I don't have the ice cream um, this afternoon or I only have one cup of coffee in the morning, then, you know, even that desire might come up again. Because we have done this strong determination, it's much easier then to let go of the desire and not being pulled by the force of the desire to act on it. Then another way to go about it is avoidance. So sometimes our desire or our wanting they are triggered by a certain thing, or by a certain person, or by a certain situation. And if it has become obvious through um, our experience that a particular thing or a particular object triggers desire each time we see this thing or this person, then we can simply try to avoid that thing, that situation, or that person. For example, if the smell from the kitchen triggers fantasies around food while doing your walking meditation near the kitchen, you simply can avoid doing your walking meditation near the kitchen. Go somewhere else, far away from the kitchen. Or an example from everyday life. So if you cannot resist the temptation of the delicious ice cream that they sell on the corner of Craving Street and Indulgence Avenue, then you simply can avoid that part of town. So these are a few ways of dealing um, with very strong forms of desire, wanting, or attachment. As we have seen earlier, nothing can be called me, mine, I, or belonging to a self. However, based on a deeply rooted delusion or ignorance, we, re we regard material objects, we regard the body and the mind as me, mine, or belonging to a self. And with this notion of me and mine, we almost immediately become attached to all sorts of things, be they animate or inanimate. We desire possessions, we crave for sensual pleasures, or we cling 
to blissful mental states or we want things to be different. So instead of craving for certain things and then become attached to them, we need to abandon the very craving, the very desire for them. So the problem is not caused by the material possessions or by, by another person, but it's caused by our delusion, by a deluded attitude to these animate or inanimate things. So this means as long as desire, wanting, craving or attachment is present in the mind, we never can find true peace and happiness. So I will end this talk with a quote from the Buddha. It's very short and to the point. He said, Nothing whatsoever is worth to be clung to. Even the most blissful states of mind, it's not worth to be clung to. Let's sit still for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.